2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's
4: right. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
5: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And today we're going to be talking about cargo cults, uh, But we're not just going to approach it um, from a anthropological, uh, standpoint. We may be looking at this, uh, in terms of what it says about our understanding of science programming, uh, the environment in which we live in a way it's a deceptively deep topic.
3: Yeah. I am really interested in this because I feel like we're not just going to be explaining something for the audience, but like that it has applications to our everyday and also to the way that we view science. Um, similar to the sort of what we did with that Wicked Problems episode a couple weeks ago. Exactly. This one should be a, a good conversation starter as well. So, before we get into that, though, we just want to remind you uh, podcasting, that's not all we do. We're also writers and video performers. Uh, that's, <laughs> a, that's a weird way to describe ourselves. But yeah, we do videos as well about science and education. Uh, you can find all of that stuff at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's our mothership. That's where we keep all of the goodies. And if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, and we are now on Instagram. Uh, all of those are below the mind, I believe and you can also catch up with us on Fridays we live stream on Fridays at noon eastern standard time we usually do periscope but sometimes we do facebook live uh we will let you know on all those platforms i mentioned above whether it's uh one or the other uh earlier that day so check us out if you want to come and ask us some questions see what we look like and uh make fun of our haircuts whatever <laughs> that's what we're there for and it's a uh, it's our own little cargo cult right yeah now uh, but before we get into it we're just going to uh, just
5: initially uh define cargo cults. Yeah. Just, this is where you have uh you know an indigenous population um in, a, in an island environment rather cut off from the rest of the world mm-hmm. and then they are suddenly uh privy to the the wonders and marvels and materialism of uh the greater outside world of 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 modern civilizations and all of their products and goods and then how they respond to that uh maybe they end up building a f- you know, sort of fake uh, airstrips or even airplane effigies to try and lure the foreigners back uh, so that they can receive uh, their bountiful goods once more.
3: Yeah, and this may sound like something that's like a fairly isolated incident, but it's actually it happened with hundreds of different uh, native peoples in the Melanesia region, mm-hmm. especially during World War II um, in the Pacific Theater, I guess is how they would put it. But anthropologists after and during the war found a lot of these organizations and they were all basically operating around the, along the same lines that you're talking about here um building these fake runways fake wharves I mean we am calling them fake but they, they to them they were real they yeah. were building radio towers out of bamboo
5: yeah they were in a way they were like I, I kept I keep thinking of them as as effigies as mm-hmm. uh, as you know as almost like a you know a holy icon to try and bring back this presence.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the I, I think the modern day names for some of the places that you would recognize are Papua New Guinea, uh, the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and Fiji. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, actually, like we hear some of those Fiji we think of as being like a resort place, right? <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, this not too long ago, there were people there who thought, hey, if I build an airstrip. Uh, it will bring, some deity will bring me cargo goods, uh, that will make my life better and basically ascend me to a paradise, right?
5: Yeah. And these are also areas where, um, anthropologists, even up into in, in recent times here, have been able to explore really more, more ancient and primal ways of, uh, of viewing the world uh, through local beliefs. It's really been a, you know, a, a rich place to study how
3: the human condition works. Yeah, it's especially interesting. Uh We have some examples. In, in fact, the John Frum movement in particular is, mm-hmm. I believe, still going today. There's still, uh even though the people who are involved in that movement, some of them have been to Western civilized, quote unquote, countries, and they've seen what is out there in the rest of the world. They still hold on to this belief that a guy named John Frum is going to show up one day with a bunch of stuff.
0: Yeah.
5: Now, th- this whole topic, especially as, as we begin to dive into it and, and, and as we explore it in, in greater depth, uh, it, it's easy to sort of look at it in very black and white terms. To look at it in terms of modern and primitive, yeah. of you know, of Western and Pacific. Uh, so, to, to sort of ground our exploration, I want to in- introduce a, a very sci-fi. Uh, forward-thinking uh, concept here, and this is um, the, the idea of an outside context problem. This was, uh, this was coined by a sci-fi author, uh, one of my personal favorites, E.N.M. Banks, in his culture book, Accession. Now, this, uh, this occurs, an outside context problem occurs when a society or civilization encounters a problem, threat, or complication that they have no context to prepare for uh, or perhaps even efficiently uh, deal with. So the classic example is, a colonial warship arriving on the shores of a primitive society. Uh in uh, the uh, the book Accession, it's an object from outside the known universe and seemingly older than the known universe popping into an in existence. Now, another example, and this is apparently the the inspiration for uh for Banks' creation of the term outside context problem okay. is that he uh back in the day, uh he was playing the original version of uh, Sid Meier's Civilization. Yeah. And uh it, if you've ever played this, it's, uh, you know, it's, you, you take control of different civilizations and then you're, you're, you're going up this technology tree. And yeah. so sometimes you're often you're encountering uh, other civilizations at the same technological level, but sometimes there's a discrepancy. And, um, and for instance, one might find uh, oneself in a situation playing this game where you're encountering a modern battleship while you're still stuck using wooden sailing ships. Mm-hmm. Outside context problem. You couldn't possibly prepare for it. Now, an, an outside context problem is often fatal. Most societies and civilizations only ever encounter one of these things. Uh, and history provides us with numerous examples of how these typically play out. Uh, uh, most of them seem to come to us through, uh, you know, the more recent time, in more recent times, the colonial expansion of the uh, imperialist uh, European powers. Yeah. But we also see some uh, thought-provoking examples uh, from the 20th century, uh, particularly with cargo cults, which we're discussing here, because essentially, What we're dealing with is how a society, how a culture responds to uh, an outside context problem, to contact with this with this force, with this world that is so vastly different from what they were prepared for. And what do you do? Do you? Do you you do you are you just consumed by this power are you just completely wiped out by it is, is does everything that you were previously come to an end uh yeah. do you do you somehow miraculously hold out like the you know the heroes in some sort of science fiction uh story or do you find some sort of middle ground
3: yeah it's kind of interesting too because going back to what you're saying about the um the idea of looking at these cultures as primitive from our lens I think it's uh, helpful to think about this, both from like, try to put yourself in their shoes, first of all, but then also try to put yourself in that like s- civilization mode where we're in present day society and like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a sci-fi example of this, like, uh, some portal opens up and a huge alien spaceship comes out and the aliens come down and they don't necessarily want to make war with us immediately, but you know, they're so technologically superior to us. That they seem like gods.
5: Yeah, it actually reminds me of the Cat Stevens song, uh, Longer Boats. Do you remember this one? Not particularly. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, when I would hear it, uh, when I was younger, I always, it always brought to mind images of indigenous peoples' encounters with, uh, colonial Europeans, right? Yeah. But apparently Stevens, uh, has said in interviews that the song was about an encounter with aliens. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So that, it's, it
3: makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. So, but it's yeah. kind of
5: interesting because it works either way in the same yeah. way that, uh, anything we're talking about In terms of cargo cults, uh, it could easily apply to a sci-fi scenario in which we encounter uh, an alien civilization.
3: Yeah. And so I think like we can use cargo cults as sort of metaphor isn't the right word, but like a model to apply to all of humanity, regardless of where they are technologically or culturally, and sort of look at it and say, like, this is how we as human beings are going to respond to things that are outside of our imagination, basically. Um, and we have examples of that specifically, um, talking about science and mm-hmm. sort of how we deify science in our modern day culture. But then also, uh, this is really interesting uh, bit in here in the research about programming and, uh, companies and how they go forward in a kind of cargo cult manner as well.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, it, it really has roots that extend far beyond the, the mere, um, uh, uh, you know, geographical, um, area of the South Pacific here. So as we previously mentioned, uh, it would be easy to mistake cargo cult or cargoism, as it's, uh, often referred, as the mere worship of a, a technologically superior civilization. It, it, it brings to mind, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's third law, which states, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's, that's, that's a great law. And it's, uh, but, it, but, but at times it can, it can allow you with this situation to just sort of stop at that point, right? Yeah. Um but the, uh, the anthropological evidence seems to suggest something more complex than that, though, though, though not less powerful by any means. Because remember, these cargo shipments, airplanes, aircraft, all of it is making an impression on a people with you know, an existing cosmology. They, they didn't just, you know, fall out of the womb and then perceive these, these wonders and cast yeah. everything else aside. They already, already had a fully formed, though different worldview. And then suddenly they're encountering, you know, in the case of World War II, I think it's important For us to remember, and we have to sort of put ourselves in a different frame of mind the further we get away from it in time. But this was a time of true global war in which we had economic engines of total war encircling the globe. It was Mm -hmm. it was a true world war, uh, which is a little alien for for us to consider. Yeah. You know, yeah.
3: Given where we are in time. Well, that's that's one of the things about cargo cults that I think uh makes, uh, again, like manifest about just human culture in general is that like it's yeah, like we in modern civilization can imagine the scenarios that are outside of our own personal, like right in front of us experiences, like, for instance, economics. Right. right. Like we we think we have a grasp on that idea, but we're not actually witnessing the events that lead to it. So it's sort of. In its own way, imaginary, right? Right. Uh, and I think that that's uh, essentially what they were encountering as well when they would, you know, see this, uh, new age basically showing up in front of them, starting with cargo deliveries coming to colonial officials. And they said, well, it just seems like these people are writing down stuff on scraps of paper. And then when they do that, uh, a ship shows up and delivers a bunch of things they need. So we do the same thing, right? Right. And obviously it doesn't quite work that way. As, uh, uh, Richard Feynman says, uh, and we're going to probably repeat a lot in this episode, the planes didn't come. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that's interesting here too, is conflict arises out of these cargo cults as well. I mean, sometimes the foreigners will show up with the cargo and they'll be seen as having intercepted and stolen the cargo that was actually meant for the native peoples of this region. Right? So they'll think, Oh, well that was, Hey, I I wrote my note on the piece of paper and it didn't show up for me. And then all of a sudden you show up and you've got all this stuff. You've got, I don't know, radios and microwaves or whatever. Uh, that, that's gotta be mine. You must've stolen it. Right. Mm. And so that leads to conflict. In fact, uh, the Japanese during world war two saw they became highly unpopular in this region. Uh, mainly because they tried to disarm and disperse the population, but the natives essentially thought that they were interfering with this kind of cargo cult mentality and attacked their warships with canoes. Uh, and they thought that they would be invulnerable because they doused themselves in a kind of holy water, but then they were slain by Japanese machine guns. Hmm. So it's really tragic actually when you yeah. think about it on a kind of larger scale, but of course, you know, all of World War II was. And so where this ties into, I think, uh, stuff that we're beginning to see in, in modern society as well is the idea that, like, there's a connection between the cargo being delivered and the deity manifesting and the end times, right? That, right. like, this is the end of our modern, our, not ours, but, like, the, the way of living that we understand is ending and a new age will be brought about by this arrival, right? Uh it's essentially a millennialist uh worldview. Yeah, I've seen it referred to that way in a, in a couple of the literature pieces of literature that we read for this piece. But yeah, that like some kind of cataclysmic event has to happen first before the paradise occurs and so subsequently then there's this like weird eschatological behavior mm-hmm. that they have because they're like, well, it's all going to end. So let's just burn it to the ground anyways. Right. Like, let's we'll destroy all of our actual resources because who cares that airplane's going to come and bring us the cargo that we need. And we're never going to have to worry about growing crops or. Um, maintaining livestock again, right? So I actually have a personal experience with a situation very similar to this oh, yeah? that's happening in my life right now. And I think it's worth sharing with the listeners because maybe you have something else going on that's similar. Uh, my father believes that the end of the world is coming uh, very strongly. Not only does he believe that it's coming, he has a date. He thinks it's going to happen on October 1st of this year. Um, and so he is currently in the middle of making what I call his magical mystery tour. Uh He's touring around the world, going to see all of the sites that he either hasn't gotten to see yet. Like he went to Jerusalem or he just took his wife to New York City uh, or visiting family members that he hasn't seen in a long time because he thinks this is the end. Uh, and it's when i was reading about these cargo cults i was like oh this is what's go-. like it seems crazy to me but it's the same thing that's kind of going on with my dad right that he's like well in order for paradise to show up right because mm-hmm. it's this is very deeply connected to his beliefs in christianity um he thinks that it, it has to it has to all be destroyed first right like we can't imagine a world without an apo- uh, a new world without an apocalypse
5: yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, the ideas that are wrapped up in cargoism, they are not that dissimilar from uh, from many of the uh, the ideas uh, existing in, uh, in in various Christian movements that are very much based on the imminent end of the world as we know it, the imminent return of a savior, right? And it creates a very dramatic model for the near future. With, with a with a more or less definite timeline to work with, whereas and maybe that's part of the attraction of it, right is that it yeah. gives you a definite timeline for 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 the future that is just not realistic
3: outside of this particular worldview. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, and you know, I don't want to dive too down the personal hole for, for myself here, mm-hmm. uh, just cause that probably wouldn't be fair to the audience. We should cover the, the topic at hand here, but looking at my dad's experience with it, like, it seems to me like it's more of an issue of like, he's come to this point where he doesn't really see how he fits in to the, to the modern world. Right. Like, um, it's it's like almost like it's grown past him and so the way that he deals with that is saying well then of course that like if i'm irrelevant then that must mean that the world's gonna end right uh-huh. that like there's some kind of imaginary it's easier to create something that's fantastical right like in the magical thinking terms than it is to sort of come to grips with the complexities of reality
5: yeah and apocalypse is kind of the uh it's kind of the reset button. It's kind of the rage quit even.
3: Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. Uh,
5: Of life. Right.
3: Yeah. I don't know if others out there have experiences with like something like that, or if, uh, I know I, it seems pretty crazy to me when I, when I hear my family members talk about this, but you know, it is, it's just kind of interesting, like that you can see, uh, somebody in 2016 sort of initiating the same behaviors of, Oh, I'm just going to leave all that other stuff behind and let it basically, uh, lay fallow, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, because why bother, right? Like the, it's, it's, the apocalypse is coming anyways. Um, and, and all the goodies will come my way. I don't need to really worry about like earning money or, I don't know, um, farming my fields mm-hmm. as the example goes with cargo cults.
5: And of course, this just brings us to the question of, of how do you interpret the idea of cargoism? How do you interpret cargo itself or Kago as it's known in the, the pidgin Englishes of uh, Melanesia? Because on one hand, it's something that a cargo cult, you know, led or instigated by a, a charismatic uh, leader. That's always important to remember. There are mm-hmm. s- there are strong elements of cults as we know it uh, inherent in these cargo cults. Yeah. Um so the uh, they asked for it through dance, through marching, ritual, communication with spirits uh, in, in the building of these effigies in some cases. So in its most literal form, we're talking about cargo as money or Western manufactured goods that are shipped into the island in massive amounts, particularly uh, we're talking about the you know, during the, the Pacific War. The most remarkable version, of course, is just the, the recreation of landing strips and airplanes, um, you know, making it possible for these items to return.
3: Yeah, I mean, and down to wharves and warehouses and the radio towers one is the one that kept getting me. They would actually build antennas and it was like they didn't understand what an antenna was, but mm-hmm. they they saw what it looked like and they knew there was some kind of cause and effect between the antenna and the cargo arriving. Right. Yeah. Um. So they did their best to replicate that.
5: You know, I I didn't encounter this in the material we we're looking at, but I wonder to what extent um, cargo cultism plays into uh ancient astronaut beliefs. I, oh, I I'm yeah. assuming there's yeah. a strong connection there. Uh but I'm not uh, I I'm not that familiar with uh, all the ancient astronaut uh, materials out there.
3: Yeah, I don't I, I- I don't know if you've ever done an episode on it before. I'm wondering if the conspiracy uh, guys here at How Stuff Works, who do stuff they don't want you to know, have done something on it. But can you just briefly summarize that for our audience?
5: Uh, this is the idea that uh, extraterrestrial visitors, or I think in some cases, you know, maybe it's somebody from the future. But anyway, yeah. some essentially it's saying that humanity, as we know it, was shaped by an outside context uh, um, event earlier
3: in its existence so yeah. you know
5: space aliens came and showed us how to make bread it's sort of sort like of
3: the stargate model right like yeah. i think stargate is sort of based off of that idea that like the deities that were worshipped in ancient egypt were actually technologically advanced uh aliens yeah or something along those and, lines you know
5: i could see if someone were looking at the cargo cult model you could take that model apply it to ancient civilizations, and you could try and make, you know, you could try and bring the two together and say, well, they built this particular monument, uh, as a kind of, you know, fake uh, radio tower. They right. were trying to, um, to, to recreate the form, though we're unable to understand the function of, you know, very technologically
3: advanced, uh, items. And I brought up economics earlier, so here's kind of an example of how the economics aspect played out in this region in a similar way to the cargo cult thing. It wasn't necessary. I mean, they were connected, but it wasn't necessarily uh, an example of it. But so for instance, they would find, Hey, we're trading with these colonials that have shown up, uh, all of a sudden, I don't know what they're uh, giving them, Kava maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and, or selling them and, uh, it's worth 30 pounds one week. Right. And so they think, okay, uh, this unit of Kava is worth 30 pounds. And then a couple of weeks later, the colonials show up and they say, well, we're only going to give you five pounds for it now. And they go, well, what, what are you talking about? Why it was, it's worth 30 pounds. Uh, and because they have no. You know, outside context for understanding like fluctuations of the the value of a pound or uh-huh. the value of kava or whatever, uh, it, it doesn't make sense for them, right? And that to us seems like a basic cause and effect type thing, right? But then extrapolate that outwards to like a uh, deific proportions. Right.
5: Yeah. So, so with this literal idea of cargo, uh, it, it's, it's easy to see why many of these cults flared up. And then died out. Right. Because you can only build fake airplanes and landing strips and radio towers so long. You can only pray to these gods that people have seen (laughs) so long before there. It becomes apparent they're not coming back and you're not getting any of these material items. However, let's go back to that idea that. There's very much a merger of ideas going on here, that these yeah. were people that had existing uh mythologies that had an existing worldview, and they were impacted by the trauma of this outside context problem and not just completely reshaped by it.
3: Yeah, it reminds me of the way that Catholicism has affected some localities uh like mystical or supernatural beliefs, and they've sort of mixed together, right? Right. Um, I think the common one that a lot of people think of is like voodoo and hoodoo. It's actually uh, somebody ju- actually just wrote into us recently and asked us asked us to do an episode on the difference between the two. And I don't huh. really feel confident that in, having done the research enough to explain it right here. but Maybe we'll <laughs> do something on that in the future. But like something like that, that merger of cultures is sort of what's going on here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So but it's like capital intersecting with religion.
5: Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean it, it you end up with a, a, a sort of a metaphorical cargoism where where cargo or or cago can also mean an, a number of things including return of dead ancestors, achievement of balanced exchange relations with Europeans, um, you know, sense of honor and self-worth, uh, desire for political uh, uh sovereignty, the transformation and transcendence of everyday reality. So so cargo, the thing you're you're asking for, becomes less about this material delivery and more of a spiritual delivery.
3: Yeah. And so today the ones that survive, like we're we're going to talk to you about John from uh, they, m- maybe they're still cargo cults or maybe they've stopped being cargo cults and they've merged into becoming churches or what we would recognize as a church or even a political party or a business organization, right? Like I guess it's like their version of um like an elk's lodge or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they've. Or Knights of Columbus. I don't know. Sorry, that's like a New England reference. I don't know. Do they, I, I, we're in Atlanta. Do they have, uh, Knights of Columbus and Elks Lodges down here?
5: They have Elks Lodges. Okay. I'm, I'm not totally certain about Knights of Columbus.
3: That okay. Band, okay. Yeah. That's probably not really our bag anyways. I don't know that we would necessarily know. <laughs>
5: um, well, I, the, the Elks Clubs were really big when I grew up. Like that was yeah. very much a, yeah, me a, too. An important, uh, uh, part of the local community. Um, so. Some anthropologists argue that a lot of this boils down to the manner by which Melanesian cultures embrace a – and this is from anthropologist uh, uh, Lamont Lindstrom. That's an awesome name, Lamont Lindstrom. He uh, says that they embrace a, quote, constant background of imminent cargoism or expectation of sudden episodic change which I, I really like that definition because it, it plays into nice, nicely into this idea of the, the trauma of the outside context problem. Yeah. Uh, and I have a few other just quick definitions of cargoism that come from a few of these, uh, from a few different sources we looked at and I just want to roll through them just so we had just to make sure we have that firm grounding before we continue, um, Christian Science Monitor correspondent Nick Squires uh, defined it as, quote, a highly complex reaction by bewildered islanders to the influence of Western modernity. Uh, Kirk Huffman, a uh, British anthropologist who lived in Venatu for 17 years, uh, d- 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 defined it as, quote, a way for traditional people to come to terms with colonialism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. And Ralph Reganavu, uh, a uh, director of the uh, Venatu Natural Cultural Council, um says, quote, it's basically a cultural preservation movement. It melds exposure to the West with old belief systems. It served people well. Uh and he, he also uh describes it as kind of a rejection of fully packaged Christianity. So it all comes back yeah. around to this idea that cargo cults were kind of the middle ground survival uh method. And so that they you know they they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't do nothing but change. Yeah. But this, there was a way to change that didn't mean just completely giving in to what, uh, the colonials wanted you to be.
3: Yeah. Which is, I mean, I guess, like, we'll have to wait until the aliens show up, uh, and conquer us, but, like, that's kind of how I imagine it would mm-hmm. go, right? It, unless it goes, I mean, there's so many science fiction portrayals of first contact like that. But, right. But I, I suppose the other option is that it could just be, like, utterly violent, you know? Okay, so we're about to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about two specific examples of cargo cults, uh, the John Frum movement and the Prince Philip movement.
5: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
3: Rob, as the, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray.
5: Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny
0: nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll go
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
1: So you write the books, Gene, and the last hour on the business. I understand now it is a wise man who marries a wiser woman.
4: It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments.
1: The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on.
6: Mm.
1: Nothing compares to how hard this is.
6: Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change.
3: True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become.
6: Listen to a slight change of plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Okay, we're back. So let's get into John Frum. This is really like the it's really well laid out in this long form article in Smithsonian Magazine. And uh I I was absolutely kind of enthralled by this story of I mean, I don't I don't remember when the piece was written. It was relatively recent though, right? And the this guy went and visited this cult and talked to all of them, interviewed them, and it cult almost doesn't feel like the right term to use. You know, right. cargo cult is the term that anthropologists coined to describe this. But this one's been going for so long mm-hmm. that it doesn't really feel like that yeah and the uh the Smithsonian article in question
5: is in John they trust, and we'll make sure that there's a link to it on the landing page for this episode stuff to blow your mind dot com but yeah John from uh, i who is John from well, John from is yeah. probably John from America that's, we think uh, yeah that's the
3: the supposed root of it. Nobody really knows who this guy is. There's a um you know record within their culture of him, obviously. But we don't know who John from was. Uh, apparently it happened in like the 1930s, right?
5: Yeah, yeah. And it, uh, and it, it, it ties in perfectly. It's, it's basically the, the, the main example of cargoism and it, it ties into everything we've discussed so far. It entails the sort of paradoxical promise of both, uh, you know, returned and preserved customs, uh, and the alien materialism of the distant U.S., mm-hmm. you know, engaging in both, uh, both literal and metaphorical cargo. Yeah. Uh, this is the very much the one, uh, the, the model of cargoism where we see the construction of the, the, the fake airplanes and radio towers and landing strips. Um, and it's, uh, it's still going, uh, February 15th is John from day where the faithful celebrate um John from and continue to pray for his return.
3: Yeah. And the idea is, you know, like like we've described with cargo cults be- before in this episode, he's going to return one day. Uh and this is to clarify, this is in Vanuatu, uh on the remote island of Tana. Mm-hmm. Um and he's gonna show up and he's gonna bring radios, TVs, trucks, boats, watches, icebox machines, uh medicine, Coca Cola, and many wonderful things. I'm glad Coca Cola made it in there because it is yeah. it's a pretty wonderful thing. Uh <laughs> they didn't pay me to say. <laughs> in this episode but yeah like uh it's just interesting basically the idea is and you know in the mythos of john Frum, he's a white man who showed up uh told them hey you don't need to go along with uh what these colonialists are telling you to do follow me and uh i'll be back (laughs) i'm gonna go away but i'm gonna come back and i'm gonna bring stuff to you you know i'm
5: glad you mentioned the coca-cola specifically because if you if you want to get into the idea of um of 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 commercial, uh, globalization. Globalization, yeah, yeah, as its own kind of religion and cult. Yeah. Visit the, uh, the Coca Cola Museum here in Atlanta because <laughs> it is like yeah. entering like, the spaceship temple of a, uh, of a, of a consumerist church. Uh, and, and I say that without any, you know, comment on the product itself, but it, it's like, it's like if John Draper at the end of, of Mad Men really did found his own religion. Yeah. And, and in a way he did. I mean, yeah. it really. If you're confused by the, the ending of the Mad Men series, go to the Coca Cola Museum because that is kind <laughs> It'll of the. make
3: more sense. Yeah, yeah, that will,
5: that everything will make sense. You're like, oh, John, uh, John Hams, uh, Don Draper becomes God at the end of Mad Men.
3: I can definitely attest to the cult of Coca Cola, uh, in my international travels. I mm-hmm. mean, it's everywhere, obviously, and it, uh, it tastes differently wherever you're going. In fact, I have never been to the Coca Cola Museum despite having lived here for 10 years, but, uh, <laughs> I climbed the great wall of China when I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, there was like a, like sort of like a, a rest point, right. And uh, you could buy snacks and they were obviously snacks that were meant to be for Westerners who were going across the great wall of China. And they had something called choca cola and it was designed to look exactly like a, you know, a red and white uh, Coca-Cola design, but it tasted kind of like if you mixed hot, uh, Coca-Cola with YooHoo, and, and, uh, and it was flat and I was like, oh, okay. Like this isn't what I was expecting, but you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of like reached. It's a, it's the specter of consumerist, uh, or the Hydra of, of, uh, consumerist (laughs) products, right? It's tentacles are everywhere. So, one of my favorite parts about this, uh, John from America article was that the, the, uh, guy who wrote it <clears throat> mentioned in particular how, uh, he spoke to the various leaders, cause they, they actually divided into two separate, oh, uh, yes, two different factions. Uh, and there was almost like a, a civil war between them. I think they actually ended up having like a battle with axes or something like that that's described at one point. It sounded awful. But, um, one of the leaders had been to America and had spent time in California. And he was like, so you've been, you've seen where the cargo comes from. Why do you still, you know, espouse these beliefs? And he says, the guy's response was, well, you know, uh, you Americans have been waiting for Christ to come back for 2000 years. How's it any different? Yeah. And I, that really kind of hit me. I went, Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, and
5: it's, it's also worth, worth noting, you mentioned like this individual has been to the, to the U.S. And what, there are certain individuals in any of these movements that have, they, 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 they have had the experience of, of greater contact with the outside world. But most of the, the people who follow these uh, belief systems, right. they do not. They, yeah. they, they live in very, um, very rural areas with very limited access to any of the, the modern uh, communication infrastructure that we take for granted.
3: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Prince Philip. That's the other one. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's again, like another one that's, that's, uh, you know, highly connected to Western culture, sort of infiltrating these societies.
5: Yeah. The Prince Philip movement, uh, they venerate, uh, Britain's Prince Philip husband, uh, to Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, born 1921, as of this recording, uh, still kicking, uh, still ticking at uh, age 94. Uh, They cherish portraits of uh, Prince Philip. They hold feasts on his uh, birthday. And uh, they they say things like this is a a quote, he is is a god, not a man. Sometimes we hear his voice, but we can't see him. So uh, this on the surface also sounds like just, it's easy to to take a very uh, black and white view of this. Yeah. You just imagine, uh, the, you know, the, the indigenous people, they see this esteemed Royal individual from, uh, uh, you know, a modern society and they decide this is a God, let's
3: worship him. But it's a little more complicated than that. Um, the same thing ended up happening uh during World War Two with with Roosevelt. Yeah. Uh, one of the cargo cults referred to him as Roosevelt, the friendly king of America. And he was, you know, one of the deities that they thought would bring them this sort of paradise.
5: Yeah. Yeah. In uh, and it. In and it. The thing is, it ends up uh, it ties into traditional beliefs that they already had, including an ancient prophecy. That the son of a mountain spirit would venture far away in search of a powerful woman to marry. Oh, well, th- this ties in particularly to uh, to Prince Philip' mm-hmm. uh, movement here. So, but so anyway, they have this idea of the mountain spirit. Marrying a powerful woman. So then they get uh, Christian missionaries that that visit with tales of Christ. They blend some of that in. Then uh, the locals begin to see all the esteem that was afforded to Queen Elizabeth II uh, and combined the ideas of their son of a mountain spirit with uh, QE2's royal consort here. Uh, and this would have been the 1950s or 60s. And beliefs were uh, were bolstered even more when the royal couple actually visited Venatu in 1974. Hmm. And there's apparently been an exchange of photographs and, yeah. you know, sort of, and tribal, um, icons and honors. I think like a, a club was sent, uh, to Prince Philip.
3: Uh, they, they don't hang out together, but they have sort of a, <laughs> a, a limited exchange. But there's a kind of, in, so for me, there's an interesting, like, uh, I don't know how to put it, like, I guess that we in America don't do so as much, but I know in Great Britain that there is like this weird celebrity slash deification reverence for the royal family. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the royal family, if you're Queen Elizabeth, you're already fairly used to that. Right. Like that's been most of your life. Then when you go to this faraway place and these people literally revere you as a god, um, I wonder like if there's impact to that. It's, it's weird. It reminds me a lot of, uh, the Rastafari movement. Okay. Who, of
5: course, um, believe that, um, that Haile Selassie, the, uh, the former, uh, emperor of, um, of Ethiopia was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you had this situation where during his lifetime, you know, he's in Ethiopia, but in Jamaica, uh, there is this growing number of people who believe that he is divine. And then how yeah. does he deal with that? I mean, right. Yeah. Cause he, you know it's it's not polite to to completely you know squash their ideas but then to what extent can you play along with it without you know becoming delusional
3: yeah i guess i suppose like we'd like to think that somebody like queen elizabeth is a uh even though she's royal, that she's also decent enough to sort of not allow people to think that she's actually like a supernatural entity. Right. Well,
5: she's not, but her husband is. But her
3: husband is. I <laughs> yeah. guess that's fair, yeah.
5: Well, you know, I'm, I actually am not certain exactly what they think of yeah, her, but you yeah. know, surely if she's the the queen and yeah. and, the, and if she's the spouse of a god, then uh, then she's at least a demigod, right? But yeah,
3: it's fascinating, especially since it's occurring with people who, who were already... We in what we think of as being modern and better and not primitive, right, Mm -hmm. are already revering these people in in a way that's bordering on religious.
5: Yeah. And then but then also to what extent is it, you know, again, it's the melding, too. So are they taking an existing belief system and and just wrapping it in the skin of Prince Philip or or are they trying to understand these distant British royal figures by wrapping them in the myth? Or maybe it's a little bit of both.
3: Yeah, I, I. I'd love to hear if anybody out there has a little bit more of a connection to this. I wonder if maybe this is something that our British listeners are a little bit more familiar with. Also, when you say wrapping them in the skin of Prince Philip, I immediately think that, like, (laughs) that's going to be the Eli Roth version of this, right? Like, he'll make some torture porn movie (laughs) about uh, a cargo cult, uh, but they actually take the royal skin and just wrap it around uh, the cargo at the end of the movie.
5: Yeah, I I could see that happening.
3: All right. Well, let's perfect segue to talk about cargo cult science. (laughs)
5: Yeah. Yeah. Cargo cult science. And, uh, as we mentioned already, this idea comes to us from American theoretical physicist, uh, Richard Feynman, who lived, uh, 1918 through 1988. Uh, and, uh, particularly he laid this out in a 1974 Caltech uh, commencement speech, uh, which is available online. Uh, and it's also published uh, in some of his books. Um, but, um, he uses cargo cults as a metaphor for the public's interest in pseudoscience. In particular, mm-hmm. he invoked uh, the cargoist use of landing strips, etc., uh, in the uh, the John Frum movement, and his main targets were you know, he was going after stuff like ESP, UFOs, natural medicines, um these things that often seem scientific or they're cloaked in science but there's something missing it. You quoted him earlier. The planes don't
3: land. Yeah. And Feynman, uh, you know, he basically took it from looking at quote unquote pseudoscience, which doing a show like stuff to blow your mind, we both investigate and hear that term thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, he determined that actually like even outside of pseudoscience, we don't really live in a scientific world. We like to think that we do, but we don't. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like he was investigating mysticism, things like isolation tanks and John C. Lilly, which we've covered, yeah. uh, recently, even psychotherapy. He was convinced that a lot of psychotherapy was all similar to cargo cultism. Uh, and I love this story that was in this article that we looked at for this. Um, he went to the famed, I don't know what you call it. Is it, is it Eslin? It's a, uh, I believe it's in California. It's like one of those sort of resort slash, um, body mind therapy places. Right. And he was there. The story goes that he was there investigating and he was hanging out in a hot tub and there was a guy and a girl next to him in the hot tub. And the guy says to the girl, Hey, can I, uh, practice my massage techniques on you? And she says, yeah, sure. Okay. And. Uh, he starts rubbing her feet in the bathtub in front of Richard Feynman. And he goes, I, I think, I I think I'm, uh, on your pituitary gland right now. (laughs) And Feynman goes, uh, you're pretty far away from it, buddy. And (laughs) realizes like that actually this guy was a reflexology student there at the center and had been studying the science of reflexology, which is something I'd love to cover for the show. Um, and but but he like had no basic principle understanding of where things were in the body, hmm. and thought the pituitary gland was in your foot. Huh.
5: Yeah, that's a, that's one of so, Feynman is one of these guys who, in, in all of his writings, he's he's always throwing out these interesting little stories about himself yeah. uh, that uh, you know that are that are often amusing. Uh, there's here's a quote from uh, this particular speech. He's, that, that kind of sums up a lot about what we're talking. He says so I call these things cargo cult science because they follow all the apparent uh, precepts and forms of scientific investigation, but they're missing something essential because the planes don't land. So the the form is perfect; it looks like it did before, but it doesn't work. The, it's it's yeah. it's form over function. It's kind of it's a surface level understanding and deification of a thing. Uh, w- without understanding how it actually works. There's something missing.
3: And what is that? Yeah. And so, like I said, like he extrapolates that outwards later on from the pseudoscience world to the reality that he's working within, in uh scientific academia. Mm-hmm. And he basically comes to the conclusion that our science is basically to us is, well, just give all the information that you've looked at to other people and that'll help them judge the value of your contribution. Right. That's essentially how he viewed peer review, uh, science. And, um, but then he said, what about all these revelations in the past where like, we've done scientific experiments. There've been published articles. We've accepted them as fact. And then 2050, a hundred years later, we look back and we go, Oh, they carried the two wrong on that, uh, equation. We've been totally wrong about this the whole time. And we reassess it and then realize, well, that, that scientific system didn't really work, but this time it will, you know? Yeah, well, I think in that it gets, I mean, you know,
5: ultimately what he's arguing is missing in, in these uh, these models of uh, cargo cult sciences, scientific in- integrity and strict adherence to the scientific method. Yeah. And so in a way, what we're talking about here is is realizing that scientific knowledge itself can have errors in it. Uh, But it's the But the scientific method, that is the path where we by which we continue to change our scientific understanding of the world. Mm. We continue to evolve it and and realize where we've made mistakes, uh, where past uh, uh, theories were inaccurate. Uh, And, you know, to his point. You have to be ready to fail. You have to make your material yeah. um, readily available so that individuals can point out, uh, critics can point out where you may have gone wrong, uh, as well as read, you know, where you think you went right.
3: Yeah. Uh, he There's a point sort of towards the end of this article that we read where Feynman starts talking about sort of, you know, if you've worked in the public sector or, well, I guess it's not necessarily public sector. If you've just worked in academia, especially mm-hmm. doing science, you know that uh, for some particular reasons, there's there's dirty financial realities behind it. Right. And he said, you know, if we are only publishing the results that make us look good, that's dishonest. And he had a bunch of contemporaries that were doing. You know, they they would say, well, these results didn't come out the way that we need them to for us to get funding to do the thing we want to do. So we're not going to share them with the world.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling, is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Jean. Eugene Fodor. Jean, what's it!
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
1: So you write the books, Jean, and you on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man, marries a wiser woman.
4: It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments.
1: The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on.
6: Mm.
1: Nothing compares to how hard this is.
6: Their stories are full of
1: candor, awe,
6: and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change.
3: True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become.
6: Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
0: Same old. Oh, oh, yeah.
3: Now here's where I'm going to take it a little bit a uh, step further, and I imagine that there's some people out in the audience who are going to uh, disagree with me strongly. So uh, send those angry tweets or uh, uh, hate mail to uh, uh the mind at howstuffworks.com. I thought you were going to give out Joe's address. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, at Joe McCormick. No, uh, <laughs> I, I I would say if if Feynman was you know still looking at this today in modern society, we're looking at science to provide us. With the cargo mm. and to bring us the paradise the same way that we look down on the Melanese for doing so. Right. right. We think of without really understanding it, too, we think of well, science is sort of the religion that's going to bring us the thing eventually. Uh, and I see this especially in. Science entertainment, both on television and social media and, yes, podcasts mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, some of our peers out there that uh, they're sort of just a like, wow, isn't science great? Look at this. Look at this thing that we found out about science. Weird, huh? Cool. Look, it's defining the world for you. But there's no like real understanding of what it actually means. It's just taking like another sort of framework and substituting it for cargo cultism
5: yeah it's just the sort of the deification of a of a science effigy uh yeah. loving uh, loving the form loving the things that it's given us, but not really necessarily uh involving a deep understanding of how it works and how it has brought us these things, and being able to properly extrapolate what it can realistically give us in the future yeah i mean and this is the thing that i i feel like a lot of us fall into at varying levels. So I'm not saying that everybody necessarily has this, this sort of yay science bumper sticker right. level of understanding, you know, and appreciation for science. But but even just you know the average person, you can sort of you know, subconsciously decide, uh, hey, you know, I don't really need to worry about my life, uh, my quality of life in 20, 30, 40 years because science will surely figure that out. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about this particular um ecological problem. Uh, I don't have to worry about climate change because the science is there we can figure it out. I don't need to worry about um you know like a, a comet or a meteorite in, uh, crashing right. into the earth because the science is coming together on that. Science is going to uh reach its divine hand in and snatch that uh planetary body
3: away before it can destroy me. Yeah, we almost see that in a, a lot of our, like, uh, sort of tentpole, big blockbuster, uh, apocalyptic movies, right? Like, yeah. Like, a lot of times now... The hero who solves the problem, whether it's the comet coming at Earth or it's uh aliens showing up on our doorstep. Oh, colon- yeah!
5: I mean, Independence Day. Yeah, like, Independence that is Day some, was exactly what that, I was that is. Total of. cargo cult science, cargo cult computer science, I guess. Yeah, where it's just like, oh, don't worry, science has got this. Yeah, a computer hacker comes in, and then it's just all taken care of. Uh, and and it wards off a complete outside context problem mm-hmm.
3: that really should have just wiped out everybody. And yeah, it's silly, but we also just sort of accept it because mm-hmm. science is somewhat of a religion for us now. Yeah. Um, Feynman had a, a quote about this. He said, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And I like that, especially. Um, and he also said that, you know, it's up to all of us to assess the premises and conclusions that are presented to us by scientific research. It's not just we shouldn't just accept some panel of invisible uh, peer reviewed people telling us this is good. This mm-hmm. this will do it. Um, and I, I'd like to think, you know, this applies to our show. We try to do that in the research and, uh, but I think also as we suggested in that wicked problems episode that we did, that it's up to all of us to participate. So yeah, Yeah. Robert and Joe and I can sit here and relay all these facts and papers to you, but, don't just take it as, you know, the uh, religious fact, right? Like, go go out there and get involved yourself. Look at some of this stuff yourself. I think you'll find some stuff between the lines that we're not necessarily picking up on. Everybody approaches this differently. Indeed. All right, so this brings us to the idea of cargo
5: cult programming. Um, And this was coined by software engineer Steve McConnell in 2000. And he was very much playing off uh, uh, Feynman's definition of cargo cult science, even uh, quoting him in the intro. (laughs) And this, again, uh, harkens to uh, the notion of fake airfields meant to invoke the return of cargo, Um, the the idea that that cargoists understood the form but not the content. Likewise, some programmers, according to uh, McConnell, Right, uh, they 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 know what code does, and they know how it, but they don't know how it does it. They can't make meaningful changes
3: to the code. They can only tinker and toy with the pre-existing form. Yeah, this is um an extended uh argument. In um, are you familiar with Douglas Rushkoff? No, I don't believe so. Uh, he's a he's a really interesting uh, media theorist, and he had this book came out a couple of years ago called Programmer Be Programmed. Mm-hmm. And the essential argument was you know, all of us in modern day society are interacting with our phones or interacting with our computers. We get how the operating system works. Some of us, yeah. we, we get that right. Like we, we know how to like make it do the things we want it to do, but we don't understand it beneath that layer. Oh yeah. And that subsequently that kind of misunderstanding can lead to us being, uh, co-opted or manipulated in some ways. Um, and it, I think largely his argument is like economically, but, Uh, that's kind of the same thing here, right? It's like, understand it just a little bit deeper. I don't think, like, these guys are making the argument that we should all become, like, professional-level coders here, but sort of understand how things work under the hood a little bit so that those who do aren't able to take advantage of you.
5: Yeah, and and in a sense, too, it also gets into the idea, you know, of standing on the shoulders of giants, right, Mm. where you have this accumulated system, and... (laughs) No no one really understands everything about it. So all we can do is just tinker with it and change it a little bit yeah. without really creating any kind of perhaps necessary drastic changes that would actually improve the product. So McConnell says that uh that the cargo cult programmers refuse to acknowledge the trade-offs involved in either process oriented or commitment oriented development. Uh and the difference there being like a process oriented um development involves like you know strict adherence to this is how we create things yeah. and then the commitment oriented is like everybody here really knows their stuff give them the
3: the freedom and the space they need to, to do it. Yeah this uh, is like another application of again like the these are cargo cultism I think and wicked problems are highly connected because McConnell sort of lays out look like those are two theories of running an organization, mm-hmm. but there are imposter organizations out there, right? And so he calls like the process imposter organizations are the ones that they, they see a successful company and they go, well, how are they successful? They're generating a lot of documents and they have a lot of meetings. Right. So we should do the same thing. So we'll generate a lot of documents and we'll have a bunch of meetings, but then they don't understand that this is, that's not what makes the other people successful, right? That's not what's responsible for it. And likewise, the commitment one it, there's imposters as well where they say, well, that organization, I think Microsoft was the example he used at the time, was that organization, they don't generate a lot of documents. They offer stock options to their employees, and they expect that their employees will work a lot of overtime. So we should do the same thing. Uh We should do that. And they they don't realize that's not what leads to success. The reason why people are working the overtime is because they love their jobs. They, they love what they're doing, and that's what's leading to the success.
5: Yeah, yeah, and certainly I think there are, there are applications for this in pretty much any discipline in any business. Yeah. Like to what extent does an individual or an organization really understand the business or the product in which they are engaged? And to what extent are they just they building those airplane effigies? Are they just creating the things that seem to, be, to line up with success yeah. and hoping that the cargo comes? Mm-hmm. All right, so the the final idea I want to mention, and we've, as with all of these, we've kind of touched on some of this already, is the idea of cargo cult sustainability. And this is another idea that came out of the 70s, uh, from this time from sociologist William R. Catton, Jr. Uh, in his paper, Environmental Optimism, Cargo Cults in Modern Society, from 75. Uh, we assume that our technological advancement will save us, uh, as it seemingly has in the past, without really backing that idea up very well. Instead, quote, Runaway world technology reduces rather than enhances the habitat's uh, carrying capacity. All forms of human organization and behavior that are based on the obsolete assumption of limitlessness will necessarily change somehow to forms that are compatible with finite limits of the world ecosystem. Um, here's another uh, quote. Uh, this is from uh, Overshoot, uh, which was uh, one of the books by uh, William R. Catton Jr. It said, quote, the type two cargo cult, uh, which we're talking about here, uh, a belief held that great technological breakthroughs would inevitably occur in the near future and would enable man to continue indefinitely expanding the world's human-carrying capacity. This was a mere faith in a faith. Like stock market speculation, it had no firmer basis than naive statistical extrapolation. The uncritical uh, supposition that past technological advances could be taken as representative samples of an inherently unending series of comparable achievements, and I think that that nicely sums mm. it up. He he ends up breaking it down even in, in even greater detail, talking about our our belief that there'll be unlimited food, unlimited alternatives, unlimited energy that we'll be able to you know fully harness the sun's power. Um, that there'll be uh, other technological escapes and even ideological escapes that will prevent themselves. So it gets into the idea that we think. The technology will come and we think that we can change and yeah. that in our ascension, we can change the rules
3: of the game that we are losing. You know what that sounds like to me? Uh, the like inherent optimism of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek vision. Yeah. That like eventually we're going to get to a point where like we can just uh, print food, yeah. you know, and we don't need to worry about food and we don't need to worry about energy uh, and we won't need to worry about war on Earth. Uh, it, it'll be the you know exploring the rest of uh, the universe that that brings about those problems again.
5: Yeah, we just have faith that the cargo will come, but and we don't think about all yeah, the steps,
3: we, and all the necessary
5: yeah. mechanisms responsible for that happening. Yeah, exactly. All right, so there you have it. I think we're going to leave it there. Um, you know, we hope this one will be a, a great topic to just stir up conversation mm-hmm. about uh, you know about where we are now, about where we've been in the past, and where we're going to go in the future. Uh, both in reality and in our various science science fiction models out there.
3: Yeah. So if you have insights to add to this, or maybe you had some kind of epiphany while you're listening to this, or maybe you're furious at me or Robert right now, <laughs> you can write into us. Uh, first of all, on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. Uh, I suppose you could also write into us on Instagram. I don't quite know how that works yet, but I guess we'll maybe post an image of uh, the episode to go along with this. Uh, so you could write in there too. Uh, let us know what you think, or you can just get in touch with us the old-fashioned way and send love or hate mail to blowthemindathowstuffworks.com
4: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was we'll it
0: But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run!